Oh, can you hear me? We're good? Thanks. Um, I'm, uh, I have a question for you to consider. And the question is, uh, why are you here? And it's, and it's a multi-leveled question. Or, you know, what, what are you doing here? is the question and as um and I'll explain it's a little multi-leveled meaning you know what are you doing here on this retreat and why are you here and and that's a really valid and good question because something brought each of us here and to the retreat and so I'd like you to consider that for a moment or two or of what brought you here? Why? Why are you here? Why? Why is this something you decided to do with your life? You know, for the these eight or nine days, however long we're here. And, um, and but it's a bigger question that I ask. It's maybe it's not quite quite as specific, but the question is: Oh, what are we doing here? wherever we are you know what what is it to be a human being and what how did that happen and what and what are we doing in this life whatever the life is and i find it uh both a fascinating question and also a very helpful question not that i come up with the right answer but answers keep arising that start to fill in the the question without finalizing the answer of what it is to be a human being or what is it to be alive or why are we here in this way you know in this form called human beings because we could have been born in some other form right we could have been a a cow or a eagle or a, you know, a, a shark or a elephant or many other potential or an insect, right? But we're here as human beings and it's a very interesting realm of reality as far as I can tell. And so that question is inherent in the question of oh, what are we doing here and what 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 are we wanting what are we seeking when we come to a retreat like this to do practice like this to investigate this humanness in the way we investigate in this form in this tradition with these um, techniques and skillful means of meditation and contemplation. And I believe that what underlies the question, which even includes, well, what's the goal of being here? Like, what goal do you have for being here? Maybe you don't have any goal. That's that's a goal also, the non-goal goal. I'm, I'm I'm cool with that. But also there's the goal goal. 
of some of us want freedom or enlightenment or liberation or the uh, release of suffering or the opening of the heart or compassion is part of those those are array of goals all valid goals important part of practice and it's I believe it's helpful for us to reflect and consider, oh, what's our goal? Or what's, if I put it in more Buddhist terms, I'd say, what's my intention for being here? What's the intention that brings us here and draws us here? And I think it's helpful to consider because it also connects us with what's important to us, what we care about. And it brings the heart very much into the center of practice. And the practice that we're doing here, that Pamela was talking about last night very beautifully, um, I would also like to continue that discussion about what are we doing here and how do we do it and how do we do it skillfully or what might be helpful for us to help realize our goal, whatever our goal may be. And so I'll, I'll read you a quote from Dogen, who was a Zen teacher, one of the founder of uh, the Soto Zen lineage. And, uh, and I like that when they, there's uh, some, something I read somewhere it said Dogen was a mystical realist. A mystical realist. And I love that phrase about Dogen. Even though I don't know exactly what it means, it's pointing at something about practice and what's available for us, both in terms of the real and the true and the mystery of reality, of the truth. And so Dogen's teaching that I, I I love. I've you know if you if you've sat with me, you've you've heard me read this teaching at some point, because I I think it's a really helpful way to consider what we're doing. He said to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. And you can translate it differently at different times. So to study the self uh, is to forget the self and to forget the self is to be awakened with all things or become intimate with all things. And I think that's a good summary of what we're doing here. We're studying what's sitting right in our seat. And it opens to being intimate with what's here and all of reality. And that's, that's a nice goal as far as I can tell. <clears throat> And, and it, um, in a very poetic way, he's mimicking 
or he's really, maybe I should say it, expanding upon the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Pali Canon teaching on mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the important pieces that I believe doesn't get um, uh, pointed to or, uh, or repointed to enough is the teachings on mindfulness, which mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the Vedana, which Pamela was talking about last night, mindfulness of the heart-mind, and mindfulness of the Dharma. And the piece that doesn't get pointed to enough for my satisfaction as a teacher and as a practitioner is that all of those components of what it means to be aware are talked about both internally and externally. And that, to me, is an important piece for all of us to start to consider What does it mean to be mindful of the body internally and externally? Mindful of the Vedana or the different flavors of reality, both internally and externally. Mindful of the heart and mind internally and externally. Mindful of the Dharma internally and everywhere. And I think it's important because it breaks down the egocentric culture that we live in and that we bring to practice that is about me, 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 me. It's really about me. And it is about me and you. And the internal and external starts to point to the erasing the line between the me-you. Not getting rid of the me-you, but erasing that arbitrary division that is created psychologically and, uh, and culturally, especially in the Western culture, which is such an individualistic culture. Not all cultures are individualistic in the way that modern culture is. So I appreciate that the Buddha was pointing at that even at his time, was to keep learning or waking up to the truth or the reality of what's here that is both individual and not just individual. And so the main, or one of the skillful means, one of the tools that we're encouraging and supporting in the simplicity of this form of a retreat is awareness, right? We're all cultivating, we could say nourishing, starting to recognize awareness. And notice it right now, because it's happening right now. You don't even have to do it. You can notice what you're aware of and what you feel about what you're aware of or think about what you're aware of or any relationship you can might have to what you're aware of. 
But that's not the awareness itself that we also want to include, the awareness itself, the knowing that happens in my words like that. That's my words (laughs) for it because it's so spontaneous. And here, here's a, this is a kind of Eugene Buddhist teaching. Stop being aware. Please, stop that. Can anybody stop being aware? Please raise your hand if you stopped being aware for a minute. No? Am I... Is it, am I accurate that you can't, we can't stop being aware? Is there anything interesting about that? Because I find that fascinating. Meaning something's happening and we're not doing it. It's happening. We recognize it. We know it. We know that we're aware. but it's not in our control. We may have some skill at recognize it, but it's happening every, t- every time we know something, anything, we're aware of it, as far as I can tell. What we think, what we feel, what we hear, what we like, what we don't like, what feels pleasant, what's unpleasant, what smells good, what smells bad, we're aware of everything as far as I can tell. But we're not in control of the awareness. Meaning it's happening spontaneously. So we're starting to come into alignment we're start, starting to be aware of what we're aware of and our reactions or responses to what we're aware of, our feelings about what we're aware of. <clears throat> and a little bit, we might start to recognize the quality of awareness itself. And you don't have to work at that at all. Don't... Uh, at least in my uh, experience, you you could work at it if you want, but I find that really hard to do. You could work at being aware of the awareness. But the awareness is already happening, and sometimes when I don't think about it at all, it's recognizable. It's knowable. It's, uh, It's already here. So... Awareness is one of the thing, one of the qualities of human experience that we're working with to wake up, to see what's the truth of what sits here, what's the re, what's what is human reality? Because, because as far as I can tell, we're it, we're human reality, for better or for worse, and and we're both better and worse. Right. You know, that's just part of the human experience. And so to be mindful is to contemplate directly the human experience and to see what we discover experientially as we get 
closer to ourselves. And the awareness part can be very simple. One of my favorite um, teachings in Buddhism and the Pali Canon is about a fellow named Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Bahia is his name, of, and Bark Cloth is what he liked to wear. That was very cool gear at that time. Bahia of the Bark Cloth. And he was an ascetic. The story of Bahia is something like this. He was an ascetic and practicing quite sincerely. And at some point, he asked himself, well, how am I doing? And given the time and culture he lived in, what happens is one of the uh, gods comes down and says, oh, you're a good practitioner, but you're doing the wrong practice. And Bahia's totally sincere person seeking freedom. And he says, well, how do I find the right path? Who's, who knows real practice? And the God tells him, oh, there's somebody, the Buddha, right? And they live, you know, hundreds of miles away, not hundreds, quite a distance away. You know, I, I don't, maybe it was 75 miles at that time. And, uh, and Bahia um, mythologically travels there overnight because his sincerity and passion for practice is so strong that he's transported in some way a, a distance, quite a distance, to where the Buddha is. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a great story how he meets the Buddha because the Buddha's about to go out for alms round to get his food. And, and Bahia comes up and says, um, you know, kind sir, blessed one, please give me the teachings. And, uh, and the Buddha, who's very practical, says, uh, I'm happy to give you the teachings, not at this time. I, I've got to go to, for lunch. He doesn't say that in the book, but he says, he says, you know, I'm happy to teach you, not at this time. And Bahia is passionate, and he's dedicated, and he's not shy about the Buddha. So he says, please, sir, I, I'm sincere. I'm really looking for the teachings. Please tell me. And the Buddha says, not, not at this time. And the Buddha and, and Bahia kind of trumps the Buddha. He pulls out a Buddhist card. He asks three times, which is a big deal in Buddhism. He says, oh, sir, please. Now, here, here's the trump. That was only one part of the trump. He says, kind sir, we don't know how long you will live or I will live, so please give me the teaching. So he trumps the Buddha with impermanence. Smart guy, Bahia. And the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you the teaching, but I've got to go off for lunch, so it's going to be a quick teaching. Listen. And he does. He gives him a quick teaching, and, and the main part of the teaching is a teaching of mindfulness and he says, in the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the cognized, just the cognized. He's pointing him at the simplicity of human reality and saying, pay attention to this. And, he, and without even saying it, he's saying something I want to say. Don't add on. Just become aware of 
of this taste, touch, smell, sound, the simplicity, thought, feeling, the simplicity of it, not adding on to it, not putting more on it, but seeing what happens if you land in this direct, simple, fundamental human experience. And he's pointing him at the phenomenology of being human. And that, and, and Bahia, who's a good practitioner, gets it, does it, and wakes up. Like, you know, that day. And please tell me if you wake up today, now that you've gotten that teaching, because I'm always interested in meet, meeting awakened people. Um, and But that same simplicity is pointed to many times in Buddhism. And we're asking, it's the same thing about being mindful of the body, being mindful of the breath, being mindful of the heart, being mindful of the mind, being mindful of whatever is predominant without adding too much on to it. Or even the thought, being mindful of the thought, not just believing the thought. Being mindful of the feeling, not just believing the feeling. And I'm not saying throw the thoughts out or the feelings out because they may be good thoughts, good feelings, important. But we want, but we're also learning something more about being aware and being in this human form and the potential the Buddha pointed at for waking up or for discovering more of the human potential through the direct, simple human experience. And Charlotte Joko Beck, she said it this way. She said, practice is just hearing just seeing, just feeling. This is what Christians call the face of God, simply taking in the world as it manifests. We feel our body, we hear the cars and the birds. That's all there is. And so what we're attempting to do, I believe, in a retreat like this, is relax and open up and start to investigate this experience that you're looking at that's called Eugene. And of course, wherever you're sitting, it's called your name, whether it's Alexis or Janice or whoever it might be, whatever your name is. We're trying to look at how that experience is a doorway to a profound or amazing, I could use all kinds of great words, or simple reality that we're not familiar with yet and that there's more for us to learn, to discover. Bhikkhu Bodhi put it this way. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, I really like him. He's, uh, he's one of the senior Western monastics. I think he's been practicing 40 or 50 years as a monastic now. And I've, um, I, I know him personally a little bit, and he's, he's a lovely uh, being who's very involved in social reality as part of practice. He's not just off in some monastery, and that's what we're about. He's about actually mindfulness internally and externally, and uh, not just the receptivity of meditation, 
but the activity of meditation, meaning the aliveness that comes with the ability to see clearer and clearer and clearer about reality itself. And, um, and uh, I, well, I'll tell you this. I, I'd like to tell this about him because he, he taught at San Francisco Insight um, uh, some time ago. And it was when the, in fact, to be honest, I'm, I can't remember if it was the 49ers or the Giants, but one of them won either the Super Bowl or the, I think it was the, the, um, the World Series. And the Giants won the World he was He was staying at our house and staying with us. And I'm, you know, it's great, a blessing to have somebody like that in the house. And, but at a certain point I said, um, you know, Venerable, please excuse me, but this is, you know, the seventh game of the World Series on TV. And I'm going to go watch the game. And I'm, I'm happy if you want to join me. He said, oh, a baseball game. Hmm, I haven't seen a baseball game in 40 years. He said, okay, I'll come. And he came and watched the Giants win the World Series. And he was, he was totally engrossed in it because he hadn't seen something like that in a while. And he said, he, at the end, and the Giants were like jumping up and down at the end. They won the World Series. I was very happy. And he was like, wow, grown men jumping up and down. <laughs> he, he, and he, was tell, he thought it was great. He said, what a beautiful thing that people are enjoying, you know, something that doesn't harm, but is, you know, takes concentration and awareness, which all sports take right? The same components that we're developing here. Any good athlete knows something about concentration, samadhi, and awareness, just like any great artist knows about concentration and awareness. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi, to get back to Buddhism a little more, said, talking about mindfulness and what we're doing here, he said it's a comprehensive system designed to train the heart and mind to see the true nature of body, feelings, states of mind, and other objects, other experiences. The endeavor is made to contemplate the ever-shifting flux of experience the endeavor is made to contemplate the ever-shifting flux of experience itself in order to penetrate through to the essential nature of bodily and mental phenomena. Right? So we want to see the obvious, like, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm feeling this and I'm wondering about that and I'm worrying about this or I'm happy about that. We want to, but we want to keep seeing what happens as we get more intimate with that human experience that we all know as me, right? The me experience or the human experience. And that discovery is an evolving process. It doesn't happen in one sitting. It's like any great art. If you're, if you're a great musician, if you're even a good musician, musician, it doesn't happen the first time you sit down you and play the piano or the first time you pick up a saxophone and play or, or, or whatever the instrument is. 
No, you start and you have it takes some learning. And then as you get going, oh, something happens that's more than what you know. And what's more than what you know is, oh, music happens. And that's totally magical. Now, one of the hindrances that I want to name that we all, I believe, will recognize and that we've all experienced and seen and that I heard a lot in the interviews today, in the meetings today, is um, judgment and the judging mind. And I want to mention it because I want us to include that in what we're aware of. To be aware of the internal and external judging mind. Because it's something that constricts consciousness. Another, and especially the internal judgment. When we start judging ourselves, there's something wrong with me, I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm not the right person, I'm too short, I'm too tall, I'm too round, I'm too thin, I'm too, whatever, whatever it is. And you, you know, we all know we each have our versions of this. And, and they happen both individually, they happen collectively, we have judgments of others or we think others are judging us and you know and it happens you know politically and so the judging mind becomes an important component of reality to pay attention to because it limits what we seek freedom truth liberation love what whatever it is you will not find it with the judging mind. Otherwise, I'd be happy to say, go judge a lot, but it doesn't work. And especially the self-criticalness or self-harshness, because this is, it's very easy for me, having taught a number of retreats and practiced many retreats, to really easily recognize the sincerity of people who are on retreat and why we all come on retreat because of what I asked you earlier about what we care about, what's important to us, what we love, what's of value to us. And I want to encourage us to be able to recognize our own I'm trying to find better words. I want to say purity, but it's I don't like the word because people don't want to be too pure, and I understand that too. But but the the goodness that's here, that we are, that brings us here, and and to start to, uh, as Pam was saying last night, be aware of the judgment and either respond with some kind of lovingness, grandmotherly lovingness, grandfatherly lovingness, I don't care. And you could use any kind, if that works, to disconnect the judgment, to undercut the the connection or attachment to the judgment, which is really the belief in the judgment. And be, and I also want to include, I'm not afraid to use the warrior love to cut the judgment and be fierce about it and not be afraid to be pissed off about the judgment as part of cutting the 
cathexis, it's a psychological term, meaning that we're connected energetically to the judgment. We're believing it and taking it to be real. And, and really try this for one day. Don't believe any self-judgments. Just for one day and see what happens. And it doesn't mean we don't evaluate ourselves or we aren't able to see what's skillful and what's unskillful, but we're not doing it with a pejorative uh, harshness or attack of ourselves. We're doing it, we're trying to develop what we, I hope we uh, develops for all of us, is the awareness and the openness of awareness that brings wisdom forward when we see that we're not being skillful or we are being skillful. Or that we know something or that we don't know something. And so part of what I'm describing here is another quality which is the investigative quality that comes as we stay present, aware, awake, here, and become more intimate with now, with this moment, this direct moment. Whether we like the moment or not, whether we think it's a Buddhist moment or a non-Buddhist moment, but we start to get curious or interested in our direct experience and what happens as we're here in a more intimate and alive and real way. And, and the piece about investigation that I, that I love is it's, it's really awareness and direct investigation is not, it's not just a mental investigation. It's an experiential investigation into what's happening right here, meaning right where you're sitting, right? So, and it doesn't throw out the, there might be thoughts and ideas, but there's also the somatic, kinesthetic, energetic, affective experience. And we're curious and investigative of all of it and seeing what happens as awareness starts to penetrate this human experience, as awareness starts to saturate this human experience, as this human experience is um, starts to uh, be known in the field or space of awareness, what happens? And we're not even just looking for a cognitive answer to the what happens. There may come cognitive answers, but there may come experiential answers or felt sense answers or feeling tone answers or other kind of answers to our question of what is this? What, what's sitting here? Who am I? What are we doing here? <clears throat> And here, a little example that I use, and you could try it and see what happens for you. Whatever I'm getting curious about and I want to know more closely, I pretend I don't know it. And of course, I don't totally know it anyways. 
But and I hear it really simple is the breath. I've done lots of breath meditation. I'm good with breath meditation. It's great practice to be mindful of the breathing. And then when I'm doing it and I really get there, at some point I'll say, okay, I don't know what a breath is, even though I've been sitting with the breath for three hours. And then the breath gets even more interesting because I don't know it in a habitual, historical, conceptual way. Or I'm not letting my historical, habitual, conceptual knowledge become a barrier to the direct experience of this breath now that is totally alive and brand new now. This is from Stephen Batchelor. He said, investigation in this way, inquiry, is an intense focused questioning into the totality of what is unfolding at any given moment. We're interested in life, and we want to see what life shows us. He says, it is um, focused questioning into the totality of what is unfolding at any given moment. It is the engine that drives awareness into the heart of what is unknown. It is the engine that drives awareness into the heart of what is unknown. And so the unknown becomes an important part of our practice, both the known and the unknown, because we keep learning things as we go. It's, a, it's an evolving art, our own practice, and what we understand, and how to apply it, and how to live it right here. And then, and then it doesn't, it's not a fixed art. It's not just, oh, you paint this way one day and that's how you paint every day for the rest of your life. Maybe some people do that, but those aren't the artists who catch our attention. The artists who are living the art, that's the artist that catches our attention because they're discovering something new every day about reality and expressing it. Let's see. So the investigation brings us closer to what we don't know. What we don't know. It brings us more intimate with our experience. And intimacy is a, a beautiful word. I, I love the word, and I think I love that it's a great word to describe practice, because it's such a personal. We all know intimacy personally. We know what it is when we're intimate with someone. Actually, usually we we when we use the word in that way, it means we're like this with them. Often, sexual with them means oh, we become intimate. And, and that's pointing at something that goes beyond our usual barriers or our usual sense of separateness. And intimacy is very closely related to love. We're, 
We become intimate with people we love and care about. And that's whether they're lovers, but also even our, our children. We're intimate with our children. We love them totally. You know, not every moment I have a child, but, you know, meaning they're real people also. So, but, but the love really doesn't go away even when you're pissed at them. And so this being intimate is a beautiful term and it's used in the Zen tradition. There's a story of a Zen monastics and one of the monastics is going out from the monastery and he's leaving and he's asked, where are you going? And he says, I'm going out on pilgrimage. And the first monk says, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? And the second, the monk who's going out, he says, I don't know. And the first monk says, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And that's a beautiful teaching that we're given through from this lineage of the Zen lineage to help us learn about our own reality. Not knowing is most intimate. Partly because there's something about intimacy that takes us to what's hidden. And the word intus actually originally meant of the hidden, of the hidden. And so intimacy doesn't mean, it's not, a, it's not like opening up a Campbell's can of soup and then you get all the soup. It's like you open something up and there's more to discover and it's, it's unknown what the soup is yet. And the soup it keeps revealing itself and more that's unknown keeps showing itself. And we keep learning from what we don't know. And so the not knowing becomes important. And it's paradoxical in that way that we become intimate here with experiences we love or like or care about, but also we become intimate with our experience even when we don't like it, when we don't love it. Because I think I'm accurate if I would say, you haven't all just been having a great time here the whole time. Is that relatively true? Right? Like it's, you know, some days, some sitting, some times are, are great, hopefully. And sometimes are hard, are difficult, are tense, are tight, or, you know, something is, we're having dukkha and we're learning through the dukkha to wake up. And this is an important piece that's not in my talk, but I'm going to throw it in because the Buddha's teaching is, is suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. And these are the Four Noble Truths, and they're all connected. They're not disconnected. Dukkha leads to understanding, seeing the cause of Dukkha leads to the cessation of Dukkha, but they're all connected. We're not just taking Dukkha and throwing it out. We're living with it in a new way so it starts to reveal more about the Dharma 
And dharma, of course, means the truth of reality. The truth of, and we are that reality. We are reality. Reality is sitting in each seat here. So the, the intimacy with ourselves and one another starts to wake us up. It, and what, what's being asked in terms of this intimacy is a fullness of experience meaning a fullness of what's called mindfulness, right? Mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness. Starting to be aware of the fullness of what's sitting here, whether the fullness is very distinct or gross or obvious, or even when the fullness is very quiet and simple and subtle, we want to be aware, intimate, close to, know directly this human experience, whether it's really big and obvious and dramatic or if it's really subtle or sublime or simple. And see what happens, what it means to wake up by being mindful, heartful, bodyful. And and I'm including in this, hoping I'm including, trying to include the not knowing being part of what creates real intimacy. Seeing whatever we know, we don't have to throw out anything you know. Just don't want what we know to become a veil for what's to be discovered, what's to be learned, what's to be revealed by the Dharma. <clears throat> this is about Suzuki Roshi. One of his students said to him, you talked about the first principle. You talked about the first principle again, but I still don't know what it is, I said to Suzuki Roshi. You talked about the first principle again, but I still don't know what it is, I said to Suzuki Roshi. And Suzuki Roshi said, I don't know is the first principle. And part of what is possible is that the unknown opens us to the mystery of the reality that's sitting here. The mystery to be discovered for human beings and has been discovered by human beings even before the Buddha and ever since the Buddha in this tradition. The mystery that you all know about, you all have some intuitiveness about, some sense of, and it's really, it's the same, it's a part of the mystery that I ask that question, who are we? What are we? What is it to be a human being? Because that, I just find that mystery fascinating that we're here and we're conscious and we have the amazing potentials that human beings have. And what does it take or what helps us 
realize that potential. So let's sit for a moment. you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.